Three weeks into the invasion of a sovereign nation, millions of refugees seeking salvation, sanctions upon sanctions. What are the ramifications of economic strangulation when there's hyperinflation on everything we need to get through our day-to-day? It feels selfish to even think that. There's a war 10,000 miles away, yet we're interconnected. This we can't ignore. We're market participants. We signed up at the door. We accepted the risks. We banked on those rewards. We rode through the highs and stayed low through the lows. We found out fast where our portfolios were exposed. But the past is the past. A new dynamic is in play. We can choose to ignore it and simply walk away, or we can lean in hard, re-examine and reassess, map out new lines on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. As the war rages on in Ukraine, impacting millions of people and costing thousands of lives, I'm praying for peace and trying to stay human watching from the sidelines. Thanks for being here. Let's do our thing. Make that five weeks in a row of selling across U.S. equity markets, and it was about as rocky as it gets. Last Monday, the S&P 500 had its biggest one-day tumble since 2020. Then on Wednesday, it bounced 2.6%, the biggest single-day rally ever, which, by the way, was exactly 13 years to the day after the market bottomed during the financial crisis in 2009. Since that bottom, the S&P 500 is up 700%. That, my friends, is why we stay invested. Still, last week's rally did not last as the index fell 3% for the week and is down close to 12% for the year. That's a correction, but not nearly as bad as the NASDAQ, which is down 18% for the year and slipped in and out of a bear market over the past few weeks. The NASDAQ 100, which consists of the 100 largest listed stocks like Tesla, Apple, Amazon, and Starbucks, is down 19%, knocking on the bear den, according to our pals at Ycharts. And pardon me while I get technical, but as Michael Batnick points out, only 20% of NASDAQ 100 stocks are above their 200-day moving average. The average drawdown for the NASDAQ 100 when less than 25 stocks are above their 200-day moving average is 34%, compared to today's drop of 19%. History says there could be more selling ahead, and investor sentiment is at multi-year lows. But this is usually where the dip buyers come in, right? Right. But the last time they did, back in March of 2020, the Fed dropped interest rates to zero and the government flooded U.S. households with cash to stem the economic impact of the pandemic. And the time before that, the great financial crisis was upon us and the Fed dropped interest rates and flooded U.S. households with money. That's not what's happening now. The Fed will likely raise interest rates this week and may very well announce that the tapering program is complete. Still, the uncertainty around the war in Ukraine and the extreme spike in oil and gas prices leading inflation to clock in at 7.9%, a 41-year high, by the way, may force the Fed to change its tune, or at least lighten it up a little bit. Lighten up, Francis. The great Sergeant Hulkerberger in stripes. We could use some Sergeant Hulker right about now. This is a huge week for investors, so let's put our recent losses in perspective. March 11, 2020 was the day the World Health Organization called COVID-19 a pandemic. U.S. markets tumbled 35% at their bottom, and since then, the Dow Jones Industrials are up 41%. The S&P 500... 55%. The NASDAQ up 64%. Oil prices up 215%. Who would have thought? And there are signs that the bottom feeders are buying stocks. In the week up to March 9th, investors poured $8.8 billion into U.S. focus equity funds, according to EPFR, the most in a month. And individual investors purchased a net $1.7 billion of stocks in the week ended Thursday. Are they trying to catch falling knives? Are they falling into bear traps? Or are they the few, the brave investors who listen to Warren Buffett and are greedy when others are fearful? On the other hand, 
Gold prices are up nearly 6% this year, and more money keeps chasing the heavy metal every single week. Another $3.5 billion went into gold funds last week, the biggest weekly flow since July of 2020. And there's something about the month of March that keeps coming up. The NASDAQ peaked on March 10th, 2000 during the dot-com bubble. The S&P 500 bottomed on March 9th, 2009 amid the Great Recession, and it did it again on March 23rd, 2020 during the pandemic sell-off. Will we remember March 2022 as another inflection point in the long and windy history of the stock market? Meanwhile, the drumbeat around a possible recession keeps getting louder. Goldman Sachs economists warn the probability of a U.S. recession in the next year may be as high as 35%. They cut their forecast for growth due to the hit from soaring oil prices and other fallout from the war in Ukraine. And it's worth remembering that the last four recessions in the United States followed spikes in oil prices. And those prices have been all over the place for the past few weeks. Crude oil prices topped $139 a barrel last week before plunging 20% in one day, one of the steepest one-day drops in history. President Biden last week announced a ban on imports of Russian oil, which is about 8% of our imports here on these shores, but European nations have yet to do so. Europe gets about 40% of its oil from Russia and Belarus, so closing that pipe may be untenable. Let's get set up for the week ahead. And as I said, this will be a big one. The Federal Open Market Committee of the Federal Reserve's highly anticipated meeting begins on Tuesday with a press conference scheduled for Wednesday. In remarks earlier this month, Fed Chair Jerome Powell took the very unusual step of saying ahead of the meeting that he would support a 25 basis point rate hike to combat inflation. You never hear a Fed Chair telegraph an interest rate policy that explicitly, trust me. However, expanding sanctions and other economic penalties against Russia will likely raise price pressure, so central bankers will be forced to weigh the risks of raising rates and cooling the economy too quickly as businesses and consumers battle with inflation. The Bureau of Labor Statistics will release its February producer price index on Tuesday and we'll find out whether prices also surged for producers like they did for consumers. Spoiler alert, they definitely did. How are U.S. shoppers feeling? We'll find out on Wednesday when the U.S. Census Bureau releases February retail sales for the month. Remember, gas prices hadn't spiked to the degree that we've seen over the past two weeks, but inflation was still the number one concern on our minds. Sales, as you would expect, are expected to have slowed from a 3.8% rise in January to just 0.4% last month. Last Friday, the University of Michigan reported that its consumer sentiment index fell to its lowest level since 2011 as inflation expectations rose to a 41 one-year high. Keep in mind, this is all playing out as U.S. household wealth topped $150 trillion for the first time in history in the fourth quarter of 2021. Thank the rise in stock prices and home values for that, but only one of those asset classes looks healthy right now. We'll be keeping a close eye on the London Metals Exchange to see if the nickel market is reopened after being closed for most of last week. The futures price for the three-month nickel contract on the London Metals Exchange briefly jumped to a record high above $100,000 per metric ton on Tuesday before pairing some gains and the halt of trading. Alongside energy, Russia is a key producer and exporter of metals and grains and is the world's third largest producer of nickel, a key ingredient in stainless steel and a major component in lithium-ion batteries. The irony of sky-high oil prices is that some would-be car buyers might be looking to buy an electric car for the first time right now, but inventory is tight on those lots due to a shortage of semiconductors and now nickel. It's all connected. 
Just a few earnings to keep an eye on this week, particularly FedEx. The global shipper can often be a canary in the coal mine for global business, and its results should provide some visibility into whether or not supply chains are easing around the world. And it's tip-off week for college basketball's March Madness. That means heavy betting and a lot of activity on betting platforms like DraftKings, Caesar Sportsbook, FanDuel, and BetGMM, among others. The American Gaming Association estimates that over 50 million Americans will bet over $10 billion combined on March Madness this year. My alma mater's in that tournament again. Let's go, Colgate. Shenango County forever. Every era has its barons, and today's barons are the billionaire tech elite founders, CEOs, and entrepreneurs who have created the platforms, the software, and the products that have become core to the way we live our lives. You know who they are. Zuckerberg, Bezos, Dorsey, Spiegel, Systrom, Kalanick. If their names don't ring a bell, their products will. Facebook, Instagram, Amazon, Twitter, Snapchat, Uber, you know who I'm talking about. But once upon a time, they were just dreamers, programmers, EMT workers, kids with a vision for the future and how they would shape it. No one has covered them more closely or watched their rises and falls more intimately than my good friend, Lori Siegel. She's a former senior tech correspondent at CNN, where we work together, and at 60 Minutes Plus. She's also the founder of Dot 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 Media, and she's out with a new book, Special Characters, My Adventures with Tech Titans and Misfits. Congrats on the book, Lori, and welcome to The Express. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's so exciting to be on with you because I feel like you helped shape my future. So I I love it. Well, I'm blushing just hearing you say that. We'll get into our past in a bit. But this book, Lori, is as much about these tech titans as it is about you coming of age in the tech era and as a human being and a journalist at the same time. I got to watch a lot of that happen. But what made you want to write the book? I felt like just like you were talking about in your intro, right? It's like, this was such an extraordinary decade of innovation, over a decade of innovation. These programmers and and kind of nobodies, I call them the misfits in my book that, that people weren't paying attention to. They created these products that at the same time, people, right when I started covering it, people still weren't really paying too much attention to them. And these products went on to just like change everything. And it wasn't just the cool app or this or that. This is they transformed and disrupted industries and things obviously got complicated. Like when you looked at the the other side of the algorithms, but I think part of why I decided to write the book was I just had a front row seat to history, right? I was talking to these folks and whenever we were all like jamming in bars in downtown New York and talking about ideas, it was very cool to honor that and to have an idea of where things went wrong, of how things went. And so it was just interesting to be able to write that story and kind of put my stake in the ground as someone who's also asking a lot of these folks human questions and ethical questions about the impact of their product. Because, and you probably know this because we knew each other right when I just started. I wasn't just like some really geeky tech person. I was really interested in the culture of what was happening. And so it it felt really nice to be able to, I mean, hard because writing a book, you probably know it's horrible in a hard creative process, but it felt really rewarding to put it all into words. And you've had years and years of covering them. And I remember many conversations, some arguments in my office about who are these people? Why do we care? Why do we want to spend any time? Why do we want to send you out to Silicon Valley to do it? But I'm glad we did it because it's produced this, but it's also produced a great corpus of work that you've been putting together over the last 15 years or so since I've known you. Did the success of any of these people shock you in any way? You knew Zuckerberg early in his days. You knew the Twitter founders early in their days. Any of these folks just 
shock you in the fact that they've become these mega billionaire titans? Well, I always had this joke that if I thought you were kind of crazy and your product was like really super weird and probably wasn't going to succeed, then like it was definitely going to succeed and you should invest. I remember meeting Jack Dorsey when he, I knew him from Twitter, but when he had first launched Square, I think you sent me on the shoot, right? We were, I was interviewing him at a coffee shop in downtown New York and he held up this little plastic square And he was like, yeah, this is going to be the future of mobile payments. And people are going to accept credit card payments on their phone. You just plug this in. I was like looking at him and I was like, okay, so you think people are going to plug in a square to their mobile phones and they are going to accept payment? Like even just saying it out loud sounded absurd. I think I was one of his first on-camera interviews about it. He showed up with no PR people. There was like no, no entourage. He wasn't nervous about saying anything. It wasn't that complicated. It was complicated years yet. And I was like, well, how are you going to get out these squares, Jack? And he was like, oh, I'll hand them out in the street if I have to, but you can get them on our website. Fast forward, you see this in the book. I'm interviewing him when they're going public at Wall Street. And so it was really fascinating. I don't know if it 100% surprised me because I think there's certain entrepreneurs have a tell. The fact that he said, I'll hand them out on the street if I have to. This is a guy who'd already founded a very successful company, Twitter. And he was so obsessed to the point where he would hand out tiny squares to strangers. He's probably like a multimillionaire by this point. Now he's a billionaire. Shows that you wouldn't bet against him. And the same was with Uber. Like I remember at the time, everyone's like, this is so crazy. No one's going to like go get in someone's car or Airbnb. I think I wrote an article when I went abroad and I decided to stay at an Airbnb when it was still like kind of sketchy to the idea of it. So I don't know if it was necessarily like it shocked me as much as I think I was curious early on and seeing it all play out was really fascinating. And seeing that like, yeah, we were onto something. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of those bets paid off for them. But you know, these entrepreneurs and founders, they'll try a hundred ideas before the right one sticks. Instagram, it was a completely different concept before it started. Jack Dorsey was an EMT, an ambulance driver before he even got started with the idea for Twitter. So you never know where these are going to come from. You had unusual access to a lot of these people early in their careers. And as they developed their platforms into these multi-billion dollar companies, many of them public today, how did you establish that access? Was it the fact that you were there early or was it the fact that you know they wanted to talk and, and you were there ready to listen? I think it was a bit of both. I like the band before the band got cool. So it was that I got to know a lot of these folks and I would try to convince people at CNN to put them on camera and, and myself too. Like there was like a lot of like scheming going on behind the scenes to, to get these people on right before people were paying attention. And so I think I was part of this small group of journalists that was paying attention to this. And so I became a go-to, at least for CNN, of if you had a product and you wanted to get it on a mainstream news outlet, you would come to me. And, and so then there was that comfort of folks coming to me or knowing that I I was in there early. I know what they're talking about. I'm not just some person coming out and being like, what's Twitter? And so I think it started to grow like that. And I also did develop relationships with folks. You interview people through the beginning of their companies. And so this is the launch of Instagram, or this is these are this is what Instagram is. So then when things get more complicated, they're going to want to talk to you because they don't want to just go with someone random. And, and I think I saw that as, and, and then by the way, that always, that didn't always work. Like the Travis Kalanick, the founder of Uber. God, I remember coming into your office after this, but remember he, um, I'd asked him about women's safety and his, like I interviewed him early on and then he came back to talk with us at CNN Money about Uber partnership with American Express. And, and I remember him being in the newsroom, me interviewing him. Erica, my producer, you know, at the time was behind the camera. And I had said, because Uber had an issue with women's safety, two women had been attacked or something in, the, in their vehicles over the last month. They now have a multi-billion dollar valuation worth more than many Fortune 500 companies. And I asked him about 
women's safety in their cars. And he started taking off his mic. He was so angry that I'd asked him a challenging question, which by the way, in retrospect, that's not that challenging. Like anyone should have a company line for like treating women in safety seriously. But I remember him taking off that mic and saying, um, you know, Lori, he just kept repeating my name. He's like, Lori, Lori. And he was like, you know, I didn't know this was that kind of interview. I was like, what kind of interview? He's like a gotcha interview. And, and I was never just a gotcha journalist as much as like I was always asking some of these questions. And, and I think that for me was a moment of, I mean, I was super rattled by it. I think I came to talk to you after. And be like, I, re- I remember that well. I remember that well. And that access is important when they want to talk about something. But when we, the, the press, want to talk about something, they have to be there. There's this growing drumbeat. You alluded to it with Uber, but you, it's out there with a lot of the other platforms against a lot of them on the antitrust front from the government to all the way to consumer watchdogs who say they're responsible for depression, elevated suicide rates among teens, spreading false political information. Did any of them expect that kind of backlash at the time that they were growing these multi-billion dollar companies? No, like absolutely not. You could argue if they had had more of more of a diverse group of people building out these products that maybe there would have been more of a understanding of humanity and where things could go wrong. But, you know, the Facebook move fast and break things motto that used to be up all over the campus that like is no longer up anymore. They wouldn't be caught dead with it. It was really telling. I think someone once said to me, I think it was the former head of security at Facebook that they used to have a bigger building for growth engineers than they did for security. This is before the misinformation, the election and learning about the extent of Russian misinformation. And, and so I think they didn't expect it, but maybe they should have it. Or you could argue they didn't expect it. And who knows when you put out technology, all the bad actors, you know, you know, are, are going to get involved in some capacity, but they didn't move fast enough or really pick up on those cues. And, and I think when we looked at the political implications, what it, it's done for mental health, it's not like this came out of nowhere. Like we were asking these questions for so long. I, I was joking with someone about the social dilemma and like the Netflix doc that got all this attention and was really folks loved this. And they thought it was such a great thing that this is finally out there. I think the, the part of me that kind of killed me a little bit about the social dilemma was, you know, we were having these conversations for the last decade, just because a lot of these founders took that moment to like have their come to Jesus moment on with like Netflix. That doesn't mean we weren't asking them these questions longer, way before this, this isn't, um, you know, you turn the corner and all of a sudden it's used for bad. Right. And Zuckerberg is famous, but he's not the only one for saying that Facebook and Instagram are just the platforms, not the messenger, not the megaphone for its content. Where do you weigh in on this? You studied this so closely. I just remember the argument were just the pipes. We just let the information flow through us. Everyone from the Twitter, Facebook, all these channels of content used to say that. And I remember asking Mark Zuckerberg for a doc we were filming, how does it feel to be editor in chief of the internet? And he like did not like that question. I think now tech companies have finally caught up to this, but they're not just the pipes because the pipes don't have algorithms that push us towards one thing or the other or that amplify certain things or that make decisions on their own to do certain things or can be weaponized by trolls with varying motives. That doesn't feel like just a pipe to me. That feels like a, a crazy place that needs a lot of moderation, a lot of regulation, a lot of different types of things in order to not get out of hand. So that argument that we are just the pipes and that we let the content flow through us is an old argument. And I think all of these companies had that come to Jesus moment of having to understand that, no, not only are we not just a content platform, but we help shape content too. And so there has to be, whether it's regulation, moderation, we need to build around that. They say they're starting to, but we'll see. Time will tell on that. You created, Lori, the Almost Human docuseries and franchise for CNN. You've always cared about and covered 
the human impact of these platforms? Are they helping us be better people or are they hurting us? Where, where are we going with this? It's a good question and a hard question because I think they're both. It's like, they, what do they always say? Like technology is neutral. I'm not sure how much I believe that technology is completely neutral, but it can be used for good and bad. I think they have helped us in so many ways. And I think they have harmed us in so many ways. And I think we're actually sitting on the cusp of a new era of the internet, which is super exciting. You know, you had this last, I'm, I'm sure like people who listen probably, I don't want to like be overly whatever, but I'm sure they kind of have this understanding of web one, which was like the democratization of information and websites coming up in the dot-com boom. You have web two where I started, right? Which was mobile and social and this idea of like a more two-way relationship, not just reading information, but in that, in that world, Twitter owns all of you. And Instagram, if you spend your whole life putting out your Instagram stuff and if Instagram disappeared, so would all your information. And so there was a lot more power over the user and technology. And so now we're entering this new era of the internet, which is Web3, which is this idea that we have digital ownership and NFTs are just at the beginning, I think, of what they will actually be. And, you know, this idea of a more decentralized internet, which is a kind of utopian version of like, how do we make this next era of the internet better than the last? Now you have to look at that. A lot of this is kind of running on crypto, this idea of the metaverse and NFTs. So there's a huge barrier to entry. And I like this idea, kind of reset of the internet and an internet where we have more control over our digital selves, which is super interesting. When you talk about living in these immersive worlds and avatars and whatnot, maybe it's not all about just our carefully curated images. All that to say, the person, what, all the things I've learned over the last decade of covering technology, of like listening to utopian baby-faced entrepreneurs tell me that we're going to change the world for the better, tells me that we are entering an era where you have virtual real estate boom happening and all these people buying up virtual real estate and the people who can afford it are all generally like white men and they're building out that infrastructure. You have a lot of these investments happening and they're also investing in a lot of men and there's much more of a understanding of crypto from a certain demographic. And so if we don't onboard more people into this era, we're already going to screw it up. And one other example, there's this idea of a decentralized autonomous network, which is a DAO that everyone's kind of talking about. I think the best known example is the Constitution DAO, where all these people gathered together, created a DAO, which is like a group chat with a balance sheet to try to purchase the Constitution from like a Sotheby's auction. They did not succeed. But it showed the power of the next iteration of Kickstarter type funding through like blockchain, which is fascinating. And it could have such implications for politics and business. And, and that's where I get so excited. And then I think about when I embedded with QAnon like a, a year and a half ago for 60 minutes, and they didn't like the piece that came out and I became a Q drop on their like conspiracy board. They called me a domestic enemy, which was like certainly an unfortunate couple of days for me when they all came after me online. But imagine if they had a DAO and they had like they were digitally weaponized with a balance sheet that they could actually put funds behind that. And so if we don't look at the bad early on as we talk about the good and we don't get enough people in early on to build out an infrastructure, we will repeat the same mistakes we made a decade ago. Yeah, you mentioned if they had a more diverse board when they started or more diverse employees, a lot of these platforms might not have evolved the way they they did, but they don't. And to your point, what's being built now is again being built by Engineers, mostly white men, mostly billionaires who are mostly white men. So we could get into the cycle of income inequality. Let's take the, the metaverse and Web3 just a step further, because, you know, these companies are spending billions and billions of dollars on building out this next thing, whether it's the metaverse and Facebook changing its name to meta or square to block and Web3.0. What does that look like in a Facebook or Instagram world? What does Web3.0 look like if I'm living in it? I think, well, part of it is you're living in it. It is this idea of living in a more immersive space. It's, you know, you could take it in so many different ways. Is 
the metaverse going to be like Zuckerberg's version of this where we're like in this almost like Neil Stevenson snow crash world where we kind of put on a headset and where me and you are able to have this conversation and it feels like we're next to each other. We're not just on Zoom. We're actually like here. We're actually like in a space next to each other. And that gets interesting. And what they'll tell you behind the scenes and what I think you're going to hear more and more about them talk about is like this idea of spatial audio, where if you were sitting next to me, you'd probably like hear as I like dropped my pen or like, you know, and and it just, it's this weird thing where it's like, oh, wait a second, this feels a lot more human. And so that could be really cool. I think there are a lot of issues that come along with that, but I think that's for Facebook, the version of that's really, really interesting when it comes to the future of the metaverse. I think in general, if this is to live up to the idea of web three, which is more decentralized, there won't be one metaverse. You have companies like Decentraland and Sandbox building out these and Roblox, of course, like building out these virtual gaming experiences. And it won't just be that people are gaming in them. They will be building land. They will be having their own shops. They will be seeing concerts. They'll be having their own friends in these communities. And our children will have jobs that we didn't even know existed in some of these communities. That's crazy. All the more reason why we need to talk about misinformation and all this kind of stuff, because it will create a whole new arena for that. And then I think there will be this idea of, and we think about this with D3 and what we're doing with a media company is a modern day subscription or a way to have ownership in the upside of a company where you could buy the NFT membership pass to a certain venue. So let's say to our media platform, we can have, we'll have a normal subscription and then also an NFT membership or subscription where people can essentially own in the upside. If we get more valuable, the NFT gets more valuable. It'll actually give you access to something interesting that might actually just be in the real world, whether it's in-person conferences. So I think we'll see the, the idea behind NFTs evolve past just like these interesting art projects that go bananas and then also some that just disappear. So it's really exciting. I think Web3 is really exciting. Yeah. Listeners will remember our conversation with Gary Vaynerchuk, who is very deep in NFTs. That It's not just about the doodles he makes. It's about the experience, right. access to him, events, and a different way to engage with the content. You're building it. These big platforms are building it. It's phenomenal to watch, but also, as you say, a little bit terrifying. How are we going to remember many of these tech titans that you've been covering 100 years from now? Not that you or I, definitely not me, is going to be around in 100 years, but how do you think we're going to remember them and think back? I mean, I think it's a good question. I think a lot of them are pretty uh, interested in their own legacies too. (laughs) tell you that even behind the scenes, like they all want to build something that they'll be remembered by. I think we will think of these guys, and I say guys because a lot of the big ones, even though as you named at the beginning, were built by by men. And I hope this next iteration isn't just that. But I think we'll remember them as kind of the, the modern day inventors of the future. And I, some will have more complicated stories than other. And I think it also depends on who writes that. But I think that the media has done a, a good job of really scrutinizing these companies and whatnot. So in a, a hundred years, I think that these will be the the modern day inventors that transform society. And, you know, we're already seeing the history being written about them. Look at like, you know, we're already seeing the shows being written about it. I mean, I just wrote the book of the last decade. It's, it's such a fascinating thing to see. And I think some will be remembered more kindly than others. Well, you've done such an incredible job of covering them. And you're right. We are now documenting them. We're creating series about them. There's movies about them. And they're changing the world under our feet as we speak. What's next for you and Dot Dot Media? Because I know you're going to be covering this pretty closely as long as you can. What are you up to? You know, I think I allude to it a little bit, but we just launched D3 Network, which is we're building a whole network for Web3. So whereas you have Block and Decrypt and these inside baseball crypto 
prototype folks covering the Web3 as a whole. And then you have on the other end, the New York Times and the Atlantic covering it as a beat. There's no all-encompassing place to cover all of this and for not just the crypto insiders, but the crypto curious. And, and then from there, the folks who want to get into this world. And so we're building that out right now. And it's really exciting. And, and what's I think I'm really excited about is not only are we building that and we're interviewing a lot of the new titans, the folks that I think you should pay attention to, very similar to what I did in 2010. So we just put out an interview with Nicole Muniz, who's the CEO of Board Ape Yacht Club or Buga Labs, which is behind Board Ape Yacht Club. And I'm selectively choosing people I think that you know will be kind of the new titans or people need to pay attention to. And this is the way we're, we're starting. But what I'm really excited about is how do you build a modern day media company with this idea of transparency and ownership? And how do we apply the best of what Web3 has to offer while trying to make this next era of the internet a little bit kinder and more accessible? And so we're, we're doing that. We're going to have an NFT membership pass. So we're going to have, you're going to be able to subscribe to us in a normal way with US dollars, but you could have an NFT membership pass where you're going to be able to get a subscription to what we're doing with crypto and have access to a discord we're building out that's like a modern day newsroom where you'll have access to the decisions we're making, uh, where we're going to build out a media DAO where we can fund projects and purchase IP. And so it'll be, I call it a web 2.5 company because I don't think you can go all web three right now and also say you want to onboard mainstream people in. So I think what's next for me is hopefully at some point try to get some sleep, but build out this platform and hope that, that people really pay attention and, and want to be a part of it. If anybody can do it, I know you can do it. It's been so phenomenal to watch you go from working on the assignment desk with me at CNN to becoming that senior tech correspondent and all the moves you've made from there on. And this fabulous book, I'm very excited for it. Special characters, my adventures with techs, titans and misfits. You can pre-order it. I'm going to put the link in the show notes here, but folks, pre-order it on Amazon or wherever you get your books, maybe a small bookstore, but also follow Lori, follow D3 and all the good things you've been doing. Congratulations on this. I'm super excited for you and so happy you joined the Express. Thank you. So good to be here with you. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Cindy in Houston, Texas. We have a lot of smart listeners in Space City. Cindy suggests demand destruction this week, and we like that term given the madness in the oil market these days. Well, according to my favorite website, demand destruction is a permanent downward shift on the demand curve in the direction of lower demand of a commodity such as oil caused by a prolonged period of high prices or constrained supply. We've got both of those. Last week, oil's parabolic rally paused after U.S. inflation rose to a 40-year high, sparking worries that surging prices could hasten the onset of demand destruction. If prices rise too much, we'll drive less, fly less, and find ways to cut back on demand. In the meantime, more supply is not a given, especially given some of the disagreements inside OPEC Plus and the complications of getting more supply from Iran back onto the market. It's a very slippery time in the energy market, and prices could go either way. They could go a lot higher, especially if European countries ban Russian oil, or they could go a lot lower if Russia stops its invasion into Ukraine. Either way, smart suggestions, Cindy in Houston, Texas. Socks are on the way, and we'd like to see you sporting those on your next night out on Green Street in lovely Houston, Texas. We're going to let Dr. Jane Goodall take us out this week in honor of Women's History Month. Mama Chimpanzee, as she is known, given her decades of work with chimps and other wildlife in Tanzania and throughout Africa, is a legendary conservationist and activist who has taught so many people about the importance of wildlife and species conservation. Here's the good doctor in a 2020 video from Cambridge University talking about the urgent need for people of the world to come together to slow or reverse the climate crisis. The biggest difference between us and chimpanzees and other animals is the explosive development of our intellect. And 
It doesn't make any sense if you think we're the most intellectual creature on the planet that we're destroying our only home. I truly believe that we have a window of time, which is all the time closing. If we get together during that window of time, we can start to heal some of the harm we've inflicted, at least slow down the climate crisis. Wise words from Mama Chimpanzee. Let's hope we're listening. Thank you for listening, and Dr. Jane reminds me that if you are interested in learning more about green investing or investing along with your environmental sensibilities like I am, check out my new podcast, The Green Investor, powered by Investopedia. We're about seven episodes in, and it's getting very interesting. Find The Green Investor wherever you listen to podcasts and give it a listen. Special thanks to my pal, Lori Siegel of Dot 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 Media for joining us this week, and check out her new book, Special Characters, wherever you get your books. Spoiler alert, I'm in the book. Hang on in there this week, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line. 